Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Oliver Locklock is a British television personality and actor. He has starred in shows such as Celebrity Juice, The Jonathan Ross Show, Britain's Got More Talent, The Extra Factor and 8 Out of 10 Cats. He is most well known, however, for his part in the reality television series Made in Chelsea. In 2014, he finished third place in Celebrity Big Brother and after, co-founded the gay dating app Chappie. Ollie has also written a book called Laid in Chelsea, which spent eight weeks at number three of the Sunday Times bestseller list. In 2018, Ollie also landed his first Hollywood film directed by Michael Winterbottom, Greed. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Ollie to the Classical Corner today. Hello, Ollie, and how are you? What a surreal situation this is to be surrounded by palm trees, drinking cocktails and Aperol spritzes on the beach together. Well, cheers. Thank you for having me. This is, um, this is a weird place to do it. We usually sit in London having a glass of wine somewhere, aren't we? But um, today we're in Mexico. Yeah, we are in Holbosch um, on the beach, surrounded by coconuts, and it's pretty blooming lovely. So let's start off at the very beginning. I want to hear about your acting career, where it started, how you trained, and ultimately how you ended up in the multi-award-winning UK television show Made in Chelsea. Goodness me, that's a big, big answer, but I will try and be quick. So basically, um, I'd always wanted to be an actor, I'd always trained to be an actor, uh, and it had been, it'd gone on for an awfully long time um, that took me till the end of school. Um, I remember when I had found Back then, there were only a few places that you could kind of apply to that everyone's like, you have to go to these places. Otherwise, like RADA like, and places Rada like Land, that. the Central Guild Hall, um, Bristol Old Vic, a couple, all that lot, basically. But the other ones that are coming up as, as massive stars or have become stars, kind of like the Oxford School of Drama, Mount View, all of that stuff were, were kind of a bit smaller. And, and I got some very snobby advice to only go for the top five. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up on a, a RADA Foundation course. Um, which was fabulous. I couldn't get into the three year because only 12 people in the year get in. I ended up arrive, uh, uh, I ended up at that, um, at the Rada Foundation course, uh, which is based in Cambridge. And I spent a year there. It was potentially the best year of my life, um, apart from going through breakups and horrible stuff that 19 <laughs> year olds do. Uh, it was heaven and it was something that I loved doing. So um, yeah, that was, that was where it, it all started really. And you were training uh, for stage then, or um, or did that give you tools to f- for all types of acting? It was very much stage at the beginning. Um, that's very much how we were trained. It was very much a broader policy that, that stage was much more important than anything else. It was very wonderfully snobby. Um, and so that was that was where we, we went, really. There wasn't anything, there wasn't any camera work. We didn't learn how to do any camera stuff at all. Um, luckily, later, um, I found my calling for that. Um, but that was unusual. Exactly. And Maiden Chelsea obviously plays a huge part in your life. Um, and how did that story come about? Because I remember you saying that you were working in London at the time before you got spotted for Maiden I Chelsea. Was. I was very much so. I, was, um, I worked in nightclubs. Um, I walked onto the King's Road only a, 
10, five years before that. And uh, I had little to no money in my wallet. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's actually a quote from Herbert Merville, from Moby Dick. Um, and I decided I wanted to go somewhere, somewhere else. And um, I, so I moved from Southampton to London, found um, my calling there, which was nightclubs as a failed actor. I then worked in nightclub doors, um, hosting celebrities and kind of getting aristocrats drunk, basically, on, in Chelsea. And that was my job. I had really long hair and I wore silly clothing and all the things that some people might remember me for. Um, that there was this rumour that went around that there was going to be a new reality show because this new thing, Towie, had started. We had no one knowing who Towie was, mm -hmm. but it had started. The only way is Essex, for those who don't know. And, um, and anyway, we were like, it's going to be like that, but, but cooler. And we went, well, we'll be involved in that. Why not? And we all kind of laughed and said it'll be gone within six months. Um, years later, uh, 20, 22, 22 series. Seasons, 22 series later, uh, we sat here. Um, and, uh, and yeah, having won a BAFTA and, and lots of others. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And in terms of acting, do you prefer stage or screen? You've obviously done a lot of screen acting. Have you done much stage acting? I think if you were to go back to my younger self and ask me that same question, it would immediately be stage. Mm. Um, however, um, having been on lots of sets and every single day for the last 10 years been in front of some sort of television, I seem to have got used to that. And now I would, however much it would be, uh, a situation if I was to do stage it would certainly um, challenge me again definitely and I think I mean I don't do acting but I should think that all of the facial expressions and everything else else that you do being on stage has to be a lot more demonstrative and a lot larger and screen is very much sort of very intimate having the cameras right up to your face you know what you're absolutely right and if you look at me for the first couple of seasons of Chelsea it's very much a large character and because, of course, that was a stage character. And that's what you were used to from your training. Absolutely. So you were probably not overacting, but you were acting for a bigger... It was. We hadn't been trained. And I was, and there was a bit of a, certainly a bit of a persona that I put on, which I, I acted through a little bit when, at the beginning of Ollie Lock, Made in Chelsea. And uh, that's what I loved. I loved that character and the silly clothing and stuff like that. But it was a bit of a character. Mm. I kind of created it. Um, although everything I said and did was real, I, this, there was a character there. Certainly, when I look back, I can, I can see the difference hugely. Definitely. And do you have any plans for stage acting? Is there any dream role that you'd love to do? Would you like to, I don't know, be in Hamlet at the Globe? Or you, are there any sort of classics that you'd love to tackle? No, um, probably not. Um, if there was a twist on a classic, it would be discussed. But I've done, when we were doing Rada stuff, there was, there was, um, we did, oh God, Caucasian Chalk Circle. Um, we did... Um, Merry Wives of Windsor, we did, uh, I mean, I learned sonnets the whole time, and there were all sorts of plays that we did, Brecht and Chaucer and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and I, I, I didn't enjoy it as much. I find it very hard to learn the lines. Mm. And once it's there, it sticks there forever. I can, I can recite Twelfth Night, Act One, Scene One to you right now um, without having looked at it for years. Um, but that was my, that was my real... Um, that was my real toughie, is learning those lines. And if there was a... I loved a playwright called Mark Ravenhill. Um, I love Max Stafford Clark. Lots of ones at the Royal, at the Royal Court. Which, that would be my heaven if I was to start again. I would go to the Royal Court. Um, I said start again. It's probably the one of the best there is. But um, my, if I was to go to... I would do, do anything to, to be in the Royal Court. Yes, I would 100% do. It's a fantastic place with the 
being in the round and very intimate with the audience. I think talking about acting, comparing it to music, it's much like probably performing on a stage in front of a huge audience, something like the proms or something like that. Uh, in comparison to maybe being in a film studio where you're playing film scores and the, the, the techniques that one needs to draw on are so different for each. You know, stage acting is all about the persona going on, performing, yeah. whereas the other ones are a lot more finely honed skills. I mean, so, it's a, the weird thing is, is when, I'm often to do, when I often do voiceovers, I use my hands an awful lot. Mm. And I don't know why. I basically conduct myself in every way, how a conductor would hold... Um, the oh, what's baton. it called? Baton. Um, how the conductor would hold the baton. I would I would do that, but with my hands to my own voice, and I would have to do that, and that's how I work when I do voiceovers. I couldn't do that on. That's amazing. So very musical in terms of rhythm and. I am a bit pentameter almost. It's that kind yeah. of. It's that very much that rhythm of of learning Shakespeare was very much iambic, and that was, um, yeah, very much amazing voice. So last year you stepped away from, well, actually 2018, you stepped away from Maiden Chelsea to star in a brilliant film, Greed. How was this different for you um, to filming Maiden Chelsea? You must have had to draw on lots of different techniques and tricks that you don't usually have to, to learn the script. Presumably your acting on Chelsea is based on improvisation rather than set lines. I mean, absolutely. That was, that was, that's what Chelsea's always been about, is improvisation. However, I... Um when I got the call up from Michael Winterbottom um, from the success of 24 Hour Party People and um, the trip with Coogan and, um, and it's Coogan and um, Rob Brydon, um, they're, they're super, super successful director and he wanted to know how I made Maiden Chelsea. And I said, I'll let you know if you tell me how you make the trip. Um, and they were, because they're quite similar in a weird way. Yes. And uh, I sat there and I was like, okay, well, and he told me all about it. And I said, well, because basically there was a reality role that he wanted to fill me in. Right. They wanted me to fill in. And, uh, and he gave me, and he turned around apparently afterwards and said, it's Ollie or no one for that role. I have to have it, which is incredibly kind. Um, and uh, I said no to it because it was about a family that I had known in the past and I was slightly concerned about it, and I felt a bit bad, even though these people are an interesting bunch. I, um, I, I didn't want to poke the bear, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I said no, and then they called me back and said, by the way, Isla Fisher's gonna be your mother-in-law. And I then, I went, okay, this has now got a bit Hollywoody, and I was like, it's not, it's, and, and suddenly Stephen Fry was in it, and so like David Mitchell was in it, Sarah Solomani, Asa Butterfield, all these kind of people that you're kind of sitting there, oh my, I was like, oh my God, these people are insane actors. Yes, 100%, I will do it. Not to mention Steve Coogan was my father-in-law, which was a pretty, pretty much a good... Amazing. And I got to live with them all. So actually, living that experience was very different. It was fabulous thing. We were in Mykonos for five weeks, uh, living with all these people in one fabulous hotel where we kind of... We, we filmed in the same place as well. Locations weren't quite like it. It was a small budget, five million pound film. And, um, and it worked. It was very much like Made in Chelsea. We, in the back of shot, we had to stay in character. Yeah. Uh, even Isla Fisher was a bit funny about it. She was like, I don't know how to do this. Like, we, like, she's a Hollywood actor. She's like, I, I don't work like this. Michael Winterbottom's also famous for never giving any sort of praise or any kind of direction. He will look and hire you as an actor, trusting you that you can do what he wants you to do. Wow. And uh, so there's never a well done at the end and there's never a... Um, and we weren't warned up by Coogan at the beginning. Don't worry, if he doesn't say well done, he'll just move on. And uh, That's it. That was it. That was Almost it. best. If they don't say anything, then it's, then it's great. He knows it's great. Yeah. Because he's trusted you to deliver the lines you needed to. 
that's absolutely amazing. Um, moving to something slightly different, well, very different from that. Um, in 2016, you starred in the Celebrity Island with Bear Grylls. What was that like to be in, in comparison? There must have been so many scary things and, uh, well, just a completely different kettle of fish. So, yeah, this was a weird situation. We, um, we were doing all this for Stand Up to Cancer and they weren't, um, they weren't paying us. It was um, 12 celebrities sent onto an island off, off Panama. Uh, no beds, no toothbrushes, no anything. You had absolutely no loo roll. You had absolutely nothing. No hairbrushes, no anything you wanted. And one set of clothes. And two, you had, all we had is two pairs of underwear, which, are one, which I used to cover my face at night so mosquitoes didn't bite them. Um, so I was wearing the same underwear and just washing them in the sea. It was fairly revolting. Um, I... We were set there with no food, no water, no anything, and we basically had to go around and, and we got taught some, a few basic bits and pieces, and then and that was it. You're up to yourself, just survive. And what is the, the, the premise behind it? What is the essential game? Is there a winner? For people who have not... I've watched it, but for people who haven't watched it, is there a winner? Is it all about becoming... Um, clubbing together as a team and getting through this alive altogether, or is it about... Well, I know it's certainly not a competition. No one wins. It's about survival. You are on your very basic. You have absolutely nothing with you. And it's, it's, a, it's something that um, I was incredibly proud of myself because I know, actually, I'm quite a determined person. And I'm a bit stronger than people think I perhaps am. And if I put my mind something, I know I will try and, try and beat it, basically. Um, and I worked my bum off, really. And I did everything I possibly could. Um, and I completed to the end. Uh, Did you do lots of research beforehand on sort of, I don't know, how to filter water and how to make fires? They gave us two days of very basic training. The only thing I was scared about is the fact that there were sand flies, which are a very aggressive form of mosquito based in the sand. And they are, they are hideous. When they bite you, they're invisible for starters. They're literally like, you absolutely can't see them. And they just basically just riddle your body at night. And you will be, and you can't feel them until the next day. And so there could be hundreds of hundreds of them all over your body and you won't know to you wake up. Um, and it happened lots of times. And it was vile. Uh, but they said if you took vitamin B12 or uh, garlic that I found, you can, um, you can basically beat the system and they don't bite you. God. And um, it must have been incredibly scary. I know you had, have a very, which you told me last night over dinner, a very famous crocodile story to tell. Mm, yes. This, this was, I, you know what, I've been wildly um, disregarded for this um, beca- and criticised because... Um, during the Beggar's Island, it's very famous. At the very end, there's a crocodile. And theoretically, you can do what you want, but if you haven't eaten, that is there as fair game. They're not endangered. These ones came in crocodiles, not endangered. There's very many of them. They are, at that point, a piece of meat. But you do have to tackle it if you choose to. We hadn't eaten in 11 days, and we didn't quite know what to do. We were absolutely broken. But there was, we knew, the chance of going near a crocodile to try and find it. I was determined to try and find it, and I was the one to bring it back to the camp to be the hero. Oh and um, I stalked it, I found it, I, I then had to kill it, which I, I'm, I'm, I'm no murderer, it's not my thing. Animals are my favourite thing in the world, I adore them. And um, I had one knife and I went, well, it was it. I just had to basically stab a crocodile on the back of the neck and, and then gutted and all that kind of stuff and all the hideous stuff you don't ever want to do, but it's... This is the survival situation. This is what people will have to do in real life if there's a situation. Um, and they, they test you to it. They pay the complete test. And uh, we did it, and it was, um, 
something we had to do. It's not that nothing I'm wildly proud of. It's not that I don't wear a badge about it, but it's something that is it's very different and it's something that's not usual. But I did, and we, we did eat it, and it was... Disgusting. Delicious. Fabulous, yeah. Oh, my goodness, that, that really, really does sound... That really is a story to tell. Isn't Absolutely it? incredible. And you must have had to draw on so many, you know, deep, deep strength to do things like that and just to survive and see yourself through well it's more that you look at yourself in this different way i don't want to get too spiritual about this but you kind of it's almost out of body stuff because you're so terribly hungry you really have no food or water you have nothing and suddenly you have to work together and and all stick together and 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 try and survive this there's a reason why it's a desert island they don't want you to be there the island will do anything it can to push you off um and it does it fights there are so many reasons why they don't want you on the island and they will um make sure you don't stay moving back to Maiden Chelsea um, I'd love to just find out what part Maiden Chelsea has played in your life because I know you've met your wonderful husband um, and he's now part of a show part of the show and I just wanted to touch on really what a part Maiden Chelsea plays in your life Maiden Chelsea's been there for such a long time it feels like it's uh, at the moment it is the biggest part of my life it's where I'm known from, it's where I've got opportunities from, it's where I've met friends and family from. It's, um, it's given me a whole different branch of, of life to go down and has given me so many opportunities to meet the most incredible people that you kind of grow up watching a lot of the time. Um, someone that I grew up watching in the 90s now calls me her son in London and I was like, she was my, my, one of my favourite people of the 90s watching every Saturday night. And you sit there with Gabby Rosden, you're like, the most extraordinary situation. Um, but I'm incredibly proud of doing this incredible show that I was once asked in an interview, do you ever feel guilty that the fame it's given you because you actually don't have a talent as such? And I thought about that for about three seconds and I had to come back with a response. And I thought, although it's not learning lines and it's not, it's, it's not playing an instrument, it's not um, singing, it's not doing a talent as such, in those eyes, there is a talent to be able to keep an audience um, with you for 10 years and to have a relationship with them as a viewer to, to someone at home, to, to build, a, build a friendship through a screen kind of thing, that they, they cry with you at things, they, they, they are happy with you, they're joyous, they're excited, they're, you go through all the emotions together. And I think there is a talent in a crew and a cast that can continue that, win BAFTAs, and still nominate for awards this year, um, 10 years after we first started, on a show that someone goes, oh, it would never really work, it's just a silly reality show. Well, for a talent that I, I don't have, sometimes people can say, fine. A talent, I think, is to make someone um, sit there and laugh. Life can be terribly difficult. Sit there and laugh with you on a Monday night. And if you can just make that 10% of the population of the of viewers smile or laugh on that shitty Monday night that they're having a horrid time, well, I think that's a talent in itself. You're absolutely right. I completely agree. And you last, well, it's now last year, isn't it? Um, you married Gareth Locke on Maiden Chelsea, and that has been followed by millions around the world. And I felt so, so lucky to be able to perform for you both on your special day at the Natural History Museum, um, just the most sublime evening. What was it like to get married on live television? Was there extra stresses? I remember the wedding having to be moved forward last minute. I got a call from you about two days before saying, oh, the wedding's actually tomorrow now, um, because we had an extra lockdown that came in and 
in the UK and it was all a bit crazy but my goodness you pulled it off and it was absolutely fabulous. I mean absolutely right we had no idea this lockdown was going to come down until until we sat, sat there and I think it was a Sunday evening or something like that and Boris sat down to everyone and said I'm afraid by Wednesday or Tuesday night no Wednesday mid midnight um, there is no way that we will back, be back to lockdown you that all the rules still apply. Uh, but even harsher, and we had to stay in our homes again. I was performing at the Barbican that night for a live stream, still with no audience, but full orchestra on stage, and I remember us all being in the break. We were kind of chilling out, eating our bananas, or whatever we normally do before going on stage, and um, and we got this announcement on our phones, and everyone was planning to go home for Christmas and everything else, and friends with weddings, and suddenly this announcement came, and it was sort of catastrophe, but you managed to pull through and, and make something fabulous out of it. I'm not sure how we managed to pull through it, if I'm completely honest. We, it was it was hung over on the Monday morning. We got Made in Chelsea producers calling us and said, would you like to continue? Now, that was definitely a hangover. And I said, bugger it, let's have a challenge, let's do it. And so we did. And it worked super, super, super hard. I remember I was drinking peppermint tea in the shower. Um, so I, because I had to run out, I was, I didn't have time on our wedding, on our wedding day, we didn't have time to wash my own hair, have hair and makeup, anything like that, because I had to rush from one place to the other to get there in time. Um, the traffic was horrendous. My father didn't make it because he was stuck in traffic. I remember, he came early. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. it was terribly upsetting. There was lots of things, but we ended up doing it. And where we decided it would be a good idea to do this, um, mainly is because we wanted to sit there and... There's a community out there that, that, that sometimes needs a bit of a boost, especially at kind of Christmas time for a lot of people. Um, and some people alone at Christmas or whatever, we want to give someone a bit of joy. We didn't know it would quite be watched by so many people. And it was it, it, on those overnights, it, the weak, weak figures with 300, no, sorry, there were three and a half million people um, watched the wedding in a week. We don't know what the four AD figures are or the ones abroad, but that was in that week, three and a half million people watched our wedding. Absolutely amazing. Um, let's talk about the music that we actually chose together for the wedding. You chose some Bach and also some John Rutter for the signing of the register. So to give some background for our li- to our listeners, I played under Hope, the incredible blue whale, on the steps at the Natural History Museum while Ollie and Gareth sealed their vows. I performed Bach's Arioso, which is a movement taken from a cantata by Johann Sebastian Bach, BWV 156. It's a church cantata and was composed in Leipzig in 1729, and it is absolutely glorious. And the movement is entitled Arioso, which literally means airy. And it's so beautiful, effortless, soaring and warm. And it seemed perfect for that occasion, full of love. And um, But it was also refined and it just fitted the situation perfectly, I thought. And alongside that, then I performed John Rutter's The Lord Bless You and Keep You, which is a classical sacred choral composition based on the numbers 624 to 626. Um, and it's a setting of biblical benediction and amen from the Bible, which John Rutter composed in 1981 for the memorial service of Edward Chapman, who was the director of music at Highgate School, with whom he had studied. Um, I love this piece so much. The lyrics are very, very meaningful and touching. For those of you who don't know it, some of the lyrics read, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. So those are just two very contrasting pieces, but two 
very beautiful and meaningful works, I think, for the wedding. And I'd love to know why you chose those and what they represent for you. I think the bark piece we'll start with because that was more of an... That was, that's easier for me to explain and that was purely that we... Um, I've watched you perform lots of times now and I remember we, we were in... There was, a, there was a few times, actually, but some of the pieces that really stood out that you played when we were at the Hurlingham Club or whatever like that... and. Um, and that one stood out, I think. It was something that I really liked. And, and, it's, and when we said which ones would be best, you suggested that one, I think. And I thought that was absolutely gorgeous because I loved it. it was all, and you're right, it's, it's, it's happiness, it's love, it's kindness, it's airiness, it's in the, in the floating on clouds kind of situation. It's gorgeous. Um, and that's why I thought that that would be a lovely, lovely piece. The John Rutter piece has got slightly more significance. Um, it's nice to know that that was written only 80, uh, in 1981. I didn't know that. Um, and actually it's become such a weirdly important piece in my family. I don't quite know why it became an important piece, but it was played at almost every one of my family's funerals and weddings. Um, it's just such, I think it was my grandmother. She was a huge John Rutter fan and used to give me CDs and tapes or whatever like every Christmas, that was her thing. And I used to, as an unappreciative 12 year old, be like, oh, thanks very much. I'd much rather a Game Boy or something like you sit there and oh, PlayStation. But, um, but as those, those years went on, John Rutter was something that became a part when Granny left. It was one of those things that that's what she left behind, was a piece of her love for John Rutter. And, um, and although um, she wasn't with us, obviously, for, the, for, the, um, for these moments, for the weddings and stuff, it's nice to keep a little bit of her involved there. So um, that was very much, that was a, that's an important bit. Of course, and I think that that piece does bring a huge amount of joy I've played it at many weddings and even though it can be very reflective and looking back on things it's also very hopeful and looking towards the future and it was also played at Harry and Meghan's actually wedding um it was yeah that was it was quite fabulous and in terms of the wedding, what did that represent in terms of the gay community for you both? Because people have followed you, your followers have, have watched you on Made in Chelsea for a number of years now. And this was, you know, a, a goal towards really the part of your journey together. And you must have had millions of people following you on that journey who identify with you both. We must um, be thankful for so many people that were before us doing all of this. Um, we were allowed only several years ago to get married, to adopt, to have surrogacy, to go through IVF, to have children. We are living in a very, very difficult age still for the LGBTQ community. Um, however, in Britain, we're incredibly lucky to have these um, opportunities. I will do anything I can to push that forward so that equality is, is worldwide. Um, I've never been one to shy back. Um, I've always wanted to make some sort of a statement. And if there, again, if there's, if there's anyone I can help during this process, I will. And I thought that that would be a fabulous way where it would... Years ago, when I came out, I was the first person to come out on national television. Um, Ian McKellen had done it in the 70s but on radio. Um, and I was the first on, on television. Um, there was a, for me, there was a, a real privilege to be able to do this so that the young people out there that are struggling age 21, 25, 18, 14, whatever they were, that they are struggling and they could look at someone for a bit of help when there wasn't that much on television at the time apart from constructed stuff like a Will and Grace or a couple of storylines and a few bits and pieces, uh, Sex and City maybe. Um, this was not 
this was wasn't constructed. This wasn't scripted. It was it was a real life of two people that are falling in love and fell in love and wants to get married, and that helped. So when we decided to get married, um, for Gareth it was very much that young, that young person that that he wants to help. For me, it had changed slightly. Of course, it was about that as well. But I also opened my mind to the fact that older people that are having children that have come out as a part of the community, um, that they can see that everyone can have a wedding. They can have a wedding and it can be fabulous. It doesn't have to be a certain way. It can be as fabulous as a wedding they've been to for straight couples as well. And that was quite important to me. And it was, there wasn't a, a, a dry eye in, the, in lots of rooms around the country, I think, because it was incredibly emotional. I think because it was quite Dickensian as well, it almost felt like a bit of a twilight saga. There was sort of all the masks were on and it was, it was, they knew it was lockdown about to come in. They knew that a couple of characters had come back that haven't and done beautiful speeches. We were under a whale called Hope. There were so many tick boxes to create a tearful moment. And also two people that have fallen in love sitting in this unbelievable building with candlelight in November. Um, saying that we promised to look after each other was something that was quite special. It was incredibly special, I can say, from not only performing, but also, you know, watching and being a part of it. And it was it was a wonderful, beautiful thing to watch and and be a part of, and certainly the surroundings and the congregation and just everything about the evening was just completely, completely magical. So as a memory of your beautiful wedding day, here is a recording for you all to enjoy of myself performing Bach's Arioso from his cantata BWV156.
So the reason you are here in Mexico is that you and Gareth are on the next stage of your journey together, which is surrogacy. What does this represent for you both and the community? And what does the process involve? And do you feel your role models for other people? Oh, goodness me, that's a three-part question. All right, that's <laughs> yes, well, what does it mean? Well, creating a family is incredibly important for us. A lot of people say, do we want to go down the adoption route? Do we want to go through anything? There are loads of options for gay men in Britain right now. However, by saying that, it's a government way of saying, yes, we want you to do it. In fact, I don't think the government particularly do want you to do it. I think they want you to go out and adopt immediately. However, having gone through this with my husband, I like the idea of trying to have biological children first if I can. Um, it's weird, weirdly one of those things that when we got asked that by someone going through the process, why don't we adopt? Um, someone said to me, that they go, this is a question you're going to hear a lot and your response could well be, well, do you ask that to every straight person? And it's actually a quite, it's a new thing that people are thinking about, being like, oh God, maybe that's something I shouldn't now be saying just to gay guys. It should be to everyone. Why don't you adopt a straight couple if they said you're trying for a baby? I was like, when you go down the adoption path. We wanted to try and have our own biological children now that, we, now that we're allowed to. That was, that adoption's not off the table. It will be something that we'll very much look on in the future. But at the moment, this is where we wanted to start. Um, Britain don't allow um, you to see the photo of the egg donor that you choose. Um, and for me, that was a bit of a struggle. You know very little information, and then at 16 years old, they can basically go and find that, that egg donor. If you're in America or, or uh, Mexico, you have... Um, the order is very different. You buy the eggs, and that is basically them over, and it's not you, that, that you won't speak to them or have communication with them ever again, basically. Um, you never even meet. Um, it's an anonymous process, and it's generally someone that is looking to help someone that can't have a baby themselves, such as us, um, in the same way as a sperm donor is for, for women as well that can't do it. It's obviously, we can't do one without the other, so it's scratching each other's backs in that way. Um, so it's incredibly difficult, that process. Um, we decided to do it in Mexico. Um, I would never think of us as role models as such. I think it was something that I, I would I, I, I share this process because it's fascinating. Um, I'm writing a book about it as well, a diary form of this book, um, of the process, which is hilarious because it's been completely and utterly bonkers and has been a real... There's been disasters, there's been loves, there's been loss, there's been all sorts of things that um, hopefully you'll read about or, or see about in the future. But I... Um, yeah, this is, this is the next journey of our lives and we're very, very aware that in a couple of days the embryos will be made and then... We will be on countdown till 38 weeks, 37 weeks, I think, actually, after, after it's all been there. We have to wait for a couple of weeks, and then it's, it's 37 weeks we have to wait. wait. And, then, um, and then that will be it. It is so exciting, and I certainly feel very, very lucky to be out here with you and Gareth while you're on this journey. And I'm, I'm very, very excited to see what becomes of it and, you know, bring on 37 weeks. Well, yes. Be, um, we won't be able to drink as much then, I don't think, do we? I, I, no, I, I, we definitely will be able to drink as much. Oh, good, all right, fine. We'll stock the fridge with rosé. You don't need to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> you and Gareth have seen me perform so many times. I know a favourite work of yours is Dance of the Blessed Spirits, which is taken from Gluck's opera Orfeo ed Eurydice, which was written in 1762. The plot tells of Orfeo's journey to the underworld to rescue his wife Eurydice. 
He has to overcome many obstacles, including the Furies and Cerberus, but he eventually ends up in Elysium amongst the nymphs, fairies and spirits, where this piece is found, Dance of the Blessed Spirits. What do you like so much about this work and how does it make you feel? I think it's just one of those gorgeous pieces. Sometimes a piece connects with you and any other form of art or medium does. Um, and it just connected with me. It was something that I, the melody I liked, the um, the feeling I liked, the emotion it gave me I liked. It was something that was, it was, what is quite interesting is it was, it was, I feel it was quite a, I thought it was quite light, weirdly quite a light piece for what it, for what it means and for what it was. And it was, I watched this for the first time, you playing it when we were in, again, the Hurlingham. And, um, and it was a beautiful summer's day. Yeah. And um, it certainly didn't feel like you were dragging us down to the underworld. No, I think this piece, for me also, feels like a very light piece, a, work, a very light work. I think it's the evoking the fairies and the nymphs and the fluttering and the floating. And that's why I love it. I've always loved fairies, magical things you know unicorns all kind of fantasy and for me that piece is what that encaptures and I think there's something so powerful about what we feel when we listen to music regardless of what the actual meaning of the work is but actually about our feelings and honoring those and going with those so yes the the whole work, the opera, is about the underworld and this terrible journey that Orfeo has to go on to rescue the love of his life. But actually Elysium is a kind of break from that. It's uh, suddenly an oasis in the desert and this feeling of calm and and warmth and and floating and peace. And I think that that, that captures that. So I, I completely agree with why you, why you feel like that. It was. It is magical. Also, yeah, the idea of fantasy, that's what I do on a side project, doing sort of novels and fantasy and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's um, yeah, something I completely understand. And, uh, yeah, it's a gorgeous piece. It really, really is. So here is a recording of myself performing Gluck's Dance of the Blessed Spirits from his opera Orfeo ed Eurydice.
As a lover of classical music, who would you say your favourite composer or even favourite pieces? I know you're a lover of Fantasia on the theme of Thomas Tallis by Vaughan Williams. Yeah, I think Fantasia um, is a wonderful piece. I've always enjoyed it. Um, it runs through green sleeves. There's green sleeves in it, which um, there's all sorts of lovely pieces. Again, it's magical. It's, there's something magic about it. It's something that's... I think I remember when I was young and I, I thought of green sleeves. I remember learning it, for the, seeing it, hearing it for the first time. And, and, um, and there was something that I loved about it. I loved the tune. Um, it was written on the lute, I believe. Um, and there's always been a speculation that they reckon that Henry VIII I was going it. to say. But yes, he always said that. Um, I, don't, I don't quite know how, but I love the fact that someone's that ballsy to say, bugger it, I'm just going to exactly. have this wonderful... Yeah, lovely green sleeves, I'll take it. The, the reason I adore this piece is... Uh, so Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis is also known as the Tallis Fantasia, and it's a one-movement work for string orchestra by Vaughan Williams. So the theme of the work is based on a tune by the, the 16th century English composer Thomas Tallis. Um, which is taken from the English hymnal published in 1906. So it does have all of these other folk tunes going through it, but it's also got um, this English hymnal uh, work in it. And it really draws on works of the English Renaissance, like lots of Vaughan Williams's works. And it's characterised for listeners by the intervals of the flat second, third and sixth, which you can hear throughout. And the Talis theme was one of nine tunes he actually wrote in 1567, so a very long time ago, for the Archbishop of, Can of Canterbury. And I love the way that Vaughan Williams has drawn on this. So there is that sort of fantasy of the old and the new and the mixing together of those times, really, that makes it so... Well, that is it's a fantasia. That is what music's about, though, is it's taking inspiration from different times, and that's what it's... Any kind of art medium is is going back into different... different, Yeah, different worlds of journeys, different times. Exactly. I was reading today, and a, a quote I loved, which describes the work perfectly, says, Throughout its course, one is never quite sure whether one is listening to something very old or very new. But that is what makes this fantasia so delightful to listen to. It cannot be assigned to a time or a school, but it's full of the visions which have haunted the seers of all times. Lovely, gorgeous quote. Gorgeous, and I think that it sums it up absolutely perfectly. So to finish off... I would love to touch on another of your favourites, which is slightly different. It is Casper's Lullaby from the film Casper, which was written by the late James Horner, the soundtrack. He composed music for over 100 films, winning two Academy Awards and two Golden Globe Awards. I was listening to it today when you mentioned it, and it really is a glorious work. And I, the reason I love it is because it's less background with in relation to other film composition and it's more of a standalone work a lullaby and i think it's very sad and wistful and relatable too so for me this makes me quite emotional this piece mainly because um i think we were at that generation where casper the friendly ghost was a thing um and the film had just come out with eric idle and christina ritchie and we kind of we kind of went on the travels we were young and and i think what it did weirdly because Casper is a ghost, I don't want to ruin any plot lines, um, he's obviously dead. And there is a terribly sad bit in it where he sort of explains why he's dead. And, um, and what I found quite interesting is that I think it kind of taught, about, taught me especially about morality. And like most soundtracks, 
to movies, there are different parts of the, um, the key title um, where you kind of have sometimes really exciting bits and then it kind of goes down to, to really, into really, really sad bits. And um, this has got three or four different parts which are each more beautiful than the other. And I think it was where I was old enough to have a tear run down my cheek. And if you're anything like me, you'll cry at everything, including kind of insurance adverts. But I, um, I remember crying at this and I wanted Casper terribly to be alive again and for him to, and for him to be. And he does, in the end, get to be alive for just a little bit. Um, just that one little bit, and um, and that breaks my heart slightly. And it's it's something I think originally that was you wanted Casper to be your friend. You absolutely did. I completely identified with him. I remember I don't know how old I was, probably about nine or ten, watching it. I had a little computer computer game which was Casper in the house, and I, I remember also watching this film. The music is very poignant throughout, and I think the theme that's used in this lullaby is actually, so in German music, we would use, or we would talk about what's known as a leitmotif, which is basically a theme. And and you find the, the theme from the Casper's Lullaby throughout the movie in different guises, but it's really brought into its own in this piece. I was listening to it today and it's quite long. It's absolutely beautiful. There's a glorious violin solo at the end that's a bit like Scheherazade. And lots of different parts to it and it ends in in an unexpected way it modulates to a different key and it just rounds off perfectly and it really touches my heart it is everything that you feel when you watch that film and everything that you would relate to mortality and the story of this little boy so it's very touching it does the idea of being that age where as a lot of people are at that age, a little bit lonely sometimes, or they don't, they're not, anyone that's a little bit different doesn't have that many friends, or, or you go home and you watch that, and you want Casper to come and say hello to you, you want him to be your mate, you want, you want to go on adventures with him, and, um, and that's what I, <laughs> what I remember. Yes, me too. All of the works we've discussed can be found in the playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. Well, Ollie, it's been an absolute delight and pleasure to chat to you today, overlooking the beach in Mexico and hearing all about your fascinating life and journey. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Beyond a pleasure, and let's go and get a pina colada. We absolutely will. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.